The Old Testament reading is the first chapter of the book of First Samuel. It is given to us by God in his love for us. Let's receive it from him. This is the very word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then... I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. And may I say to you that it is an honor and a privilege and a, and a joy for me to get to preach the Word of God to you today. Biblical books like First and Second Samuel, we may call prophetic historical narrative. These books are intended not only to give account of history accurately, but to affect the reader's relationship with God. That's what it's about. These books are thoroughly theistic. In every story, look for what God is doing. In every story, look for what the story is telling you about God, who he is and what he's like and what he's doing, because that is their purpose. Today, let's do that with the first story in the book of 1 Samuel, it's the story that's in chapter 1 that we read. It is composed of three scenes. The first scene is verse 1 through the middle of verse 9. This tells two ongoing realities in which we all live. The first reality is told in verse 1 through the 
ancestry of Elkanah. Don't skip this verse. Everything has meaning in this kind of literature, these theistic writings. So why is Elkanah's ancestry told to us? It goes just five generations back. It appears very deliberate that it is put in here. And the fifth ancestor, Zuf, is the only one about whom anything is told other than his name. The one fact that is told about him, therefore, must be the reason why this ancestry is being told to us here. The one thing that is told about Zuf is that he was an Ephrati. If you're reading the Revised Standard Version or the New International Version, that word Ephrati is translated Ephraimite. But if you're reading the King James Version or the English Standard Version, um, which is what we are reading, just reading from, it is translated Ephrathite. Either meaning could be true because they have a common root in Ephrati. But there's a great important difference between the two. If it means Ephraimite, it means that Zuf was perhaps a, uh, a genealogically from the tribe of Ephraim. And if that's what it means, it, 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 would, it would be um, in contradiction with 1 Chronicles chapter 6, where uh, the book of Chronicles is going through the ancestries of the, I mean, the descendants of the original uh, sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. And in chapter 6, it actually mentions these five generations. But they are listed in the, in the family of Levi, the tribe of Levi, not the tribe of Ephraim. So it can't be that that this means. However, the word Ephraimite could mean also that, that Zuf lived in the territory, the land that belonged to the tribe of Ephraim, that that's where he was from. It could mean that. It doesn't contradict anything in Scripture, but it's very odd if it would mean that because it's pointless. The, re- the writer has just told us that, that, Zuf, that, that Elkanah was from the hill country of Ephraim, so we already know that. There would be no point in telling us deliberately five generations back that his ancestor was also from the territory of Ephraim. So that seems pointless. On the other hand, we'll try on the the remaining option that the ESV uses in its translation, which is that Ephrati means an Ephrathite. And that is important. And that is worth telling about because if he's an Ephrathite, that means he's from the town of Ephrath. And Ephrath is the ancient name of the town we know as Bethlehem. Now that's worth telling us because in a thoroughly theistic history, place has theological meaning from the works that God did in that place. So what did God do in Bethlehem? Well, for one thing, in the book of Ruth, it tells us that God brought Naomi back to the town of Bethlehem and brought with her 
Ruth so that she could meet Boaz and marry Boaz and they could have a son named Obed and Obed could become the father of Jesse and Jesse would be the father of David, born in Bethlehem. The books of First and Second Samuel are going to tell a lot about David, how he became king, and he was a king after God's own heart. And furthermore, how God promised him that someday there would be a descendant of his, a descendant of David, who would reign forever. Somehow he would reign forever. This writer is connecting the story that he's about to tell you about Elkanah and his wife Hannah. And he's connecting that story here to that history that the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel will be telling. And and it's going to be connecting it to that work of God in the line of David and to the promise of God about the one who would come and who would reign forever. And we know something more about it because we know that there's a later prophet named Micah who would promise, prophesy that this this uh, descendant of David who would come and reign forever would be born in Bethlehem. And we know something more about it. We know that, that that forever king of the line of David, born in Bethlehem, would be the savior of the world. This first reality in which we live is that God is always present, working for our salvation in ways beyond what we can see. That is wonderful. And that's only the first verse. The second reality is the ongoing evil and suffering, which is also present in our lives. Even today, on Mother's Day, here we are reading about the suffering of Hannah, who year after year suffered for her childlessness by the torment, the evil torment from her husband's second wife. That's one evil, and there will be many more evils that the book is going to tell us about as we read on in it. So right up front, from the very beginning of this book, The book is putting before us these two realities of God's saving presence and evil's destroying presence. Both are real. Hannah lived in both. And so do we. The two realities together mean that always, always, this great God is working his salvation purposes in ways that are bigger and better than what we can see in our second reality, painful, evil-afflicted lives. In my own family, these two realities are very current Our son David and daughter-in-law Monica, they're wonderful parents, and they're trying hard to care for their son Billy, their daughter Francie, and their son Warren. They also have another son who's away at Covenant College. But they're trying to care for these three who are at home and who are all going through very hard cases of chickenpox. Plus, 
Billy had his 13th birthday last Sunday while quarantined, unable to celebrate with friends. And furthermore, Warren is right now, this very day, in St. Louis Children's Hospital and has been for the last eight days because he has leukemia, which makes his chickenpox very dangerous. I would like you to hear in his mother's own words. This is what Monica wrote about her experience, what she is experiencing of the two realities, the saving presence of God and the destroying presence of evil. She wrote, I cannot divide myself in half the way I wish I could. My daughter needs me. My son needs me. Scratch that, I need to be in thirds for Billy's 13th birthday is on Sunday. She wrote this a week ago. This is where my insufficiency gives way to Christ's sufficiency. Warren understands that this illness, meaning the chickenpox, will be tough on him. He has observed his siblings suffer through it, and it's awful. There are risks for him because of the leukemia, including pneumonia and encephalitis. We're taking all these fears right to the feet of Jesus. I know Warren is in the Lord's hands, loved by the one who loves him perfectly. That's what, that's what Monica wrote, and that's right. That's how we live in the two realities of God's saving presence and evil's destroying presence. How exactly do we do that then? Well, that question takes us into the second scene of this passage. This scene is from the middle of verse 9 through verse 19. It tells how Hannah prayed in these two realities. First, in her prayer, especially in verse 11, she asks God for three longings that are on her heart. And these longings flow directly from the suffering that she has been experiencing. This is a proper practice for us to do in these two realities. We turn the sorrows of the second reality into our prayers to God, who is the first reality. Her husband, Elkanah, hasn't really grasped or stopped Penina's torment of Hannah. Hannah's pastor, Eli, who should be caring for her, is slow to perceive her suffering and accuses her at first of being a drunkard. She longs for her second reality pain to be recognized as most abused people do. And so she asks her first reality God this petition. Look, Lord, look on my affliction. Her second reality suffering also has gone on and on as if she's been forgotten. And so her first reality prayer is, Lord, Remember me. And there was her sorrow over being childless, and her prayer is, Lord, give me a son. She makes these three petitions. She turns her second reality suffering into first reality praying. We can do that too. But she also goes on to make three vows to God, and these two are important for us. These vows flow from her practices of worship that we read about in the first scene. 
and this too is proper for us to do, turn first reality worship to God into first reality actions in how we live. First, they worship God. We saw in the first scene, one of the worship practices was to give. It was repeated. This word motif was repeated in that first scene. How they offered to God and how they gave portions to the family. The word forgive there was natan. Now Hannah vows with that same word, I will give, I will natan him to the Lord. And a second word motif about the practice of worship was that they worship year by year. The word there is yom, yom by yom, which can mean year or day. Now, Hannah's vow is to give her son to serve the Lord all the days, and her word is yom, all the days of her life. She's learned that from her practice of worship. And thirdly, in scene one, they always went to worship by going up to worship. They went up to worship. And that wasn't just a geographical statement, it was a theological statement because they thought of worship as ascending toward God. The Greek, the Hebrew word was Allah. Where is that in her vow? Well, as a matter of fact, it's in her statement that no razor shall touch his head because the verb there is Allah, to go up. No razor shall go up his head. What in the world does that mean? Well... Samuel was the last of the judges. So what's happening here is in the time of the judges. One of the earlier judges was named Samson. In Judges 13, verse 5, an angel told Samson's mother to consecrate Samson to the Lord and, and, and as a sign of that consecration to apply a sign, an ancient sign given in the Mosaic law back in Numbers chapter 6, verse 5, which said, for a person who is consecrating himself to the Lord, no razor shall go up his head. And the verb is Allah. Very same verb. That ancient practice appears to recognize that there are, in fact, evils. The second reality, which can divert or overwhelm us from our devotion to the Lord, who is our first reality. So not cutting one's hair was to be a liturgy reinforcing our devotion to God, and that's important to do. You can see why it's important. You've probably noticed that there are some people who, when they suffer the second, the, the second reality, sorrows, those sorrows move them away from God in bitterness. And yet there are other people who may suffer the same second reality pains and troubles and sorrows, but those things draw them closer to God in deeper faith. Consider these two ways of praying. One prayer might be, God, I'm frightened. If you will heal my cancer or whatever the sorrow is, I will obey you and serve you all my life. There's a second way to pray. Now my heart is troubled. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That, of course, is the prayer that Jesus prayed before he entered into his suffering of evils that were being afflicted upon him. The first prayer that I just read attempts to bargain with God. The second prayer desires God's will. 
Now, here's the question. Which of these is Hannah's prayer in verse 11 like? And the answer to that we will find in the third scene of the passage, which is verses 20 through 28. This scene will show how Hannah's acts to carry out what she bowed in her prayer is because she has found God to be her highest good. Her first act to carry out her vow is in verse 20. It is her act to name her son. She names him Samuel. Samuel could mean name of God or it could mean God hears. But the important thing is that the reason that Hannah states for the name that she gives to her son is this. I have asked him, I have asked for him from the Lord. That means Hannah sees that she asked and God gave. Hannah knows that God did not give because of a deal that Hannah had made with him. He gave in response to Hannah asking. He gave out of his goodness. He gave because he is good. And that is the first reality truth about God. In our second reality sufferings, here's how we draw near to God. We cease our attempts to make deals with him for what we want out of him. And instead, we receive his goodness. We release to him all the sufferings and pains and sorrows, all those second reality sorrows and sufferings. We release those things to God and we receive from him what he will give because we know he is good. We receive. Dear friends, if you want to draw near in the midst of your second reality sufferings, start here. Adopt the stance of receiving before God. Receive from God. That's the first step. The second step that Hannah takes to carry out her vow is in verse 22. It's where she chooses, it's, it's where what she chooses for her son. What she chooses to desire for her son. Hannah says she wants her son to appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. The Hebrew word there to dwell is yashav. It is similar in meaning to the Greek verb meno, meaning remain or abide in Pastor Mike's sermon last Sunday. Here's a parallel use, same idea with this verb yashav. In our second reality pain, we draw near to God in desire for his presence. We desire his presence. We desire to be in his presence. We desire for our children to be in his presence. Desire his presence. Draw near to God by desiring to be with him. Not to get something out of him, but to be with him. And then Hannah's third act to carry out her vow is to bring the child to Shiloh. This is verses 24 and 25. The writer narrates it with step-by-deliberate steps. She First, she took him with, up with her. The verb is Allah. Secondly, she brought offerings to, to God, a bull, flour, wine. Thirdly, she brought Samuel, not just to Shiloh, but to the house of the Lord. And fourthly, she brought Samuel, even though the child was young, just weaned from his mother's womb, probably, therefore, no more 
then five years old. And then she, they slaughtered the bull as an offering to God. And finally, they brought the child to Eli, the priest. You see, the writer, step by step, builds up to this moment when, when, uh, when Hannah brings Samuel to Eli. What will she do when this moment comes? Is she going to try to get out of some bargain that she made carelessly to God? That's not what she does. What she does do, we see in verses 26 to 28, the last three verses. Hannah's fourth act is to turn over her child with joy. Follow what Hannah says. She says, oh, it's an actual Hebrew interjection. It's pronounced B. It's what she said, but it's equivalent to our word, oh, oh, my Lord, as you live. And again, my Lord, you hear her excitement, her joy in what she's doing. She's so eager for this moment. She's not pulling back from it. She says, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. She remembers that moment back in verse 11. She remembers it as as a decisive moment in her life. She says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition that I petitioned. I'm reading it that way in those words because the noun and the verb are both the same Hebrew word, sha'al, can be a noun or a verb. They use both here. She uses both words in her statement, both forms of that word. And then she says, therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. And again, the verb is sha'al. But now it's in a different form of the verb, a form which changes the meaning of the verb from its basic meaning of asking to its complementary action of giving or loaning. It's in the sense of returning to God his act of giving what she had asked of him. You see, Hannah delights to do this. She delights to do this. She does it with joy because she has found God to be her highest good, who has just who has given her this great gift of a son. He has given that out of his goodness, and because she is so amazed at his goodness to her, she wants to give the son back to him. God has become the one she loves more than anything else. There's nothing she loves more than God. And so she is speaking about her beloved when she says, I'm giving him back to the Lord. When she tells Eli that, she is talking about her beloved. She is giving this gift to God with joy because she loves God so much more than anything else. Just as you or I, if we get to give a gift to our beloved one, we give it with joy. Like giving a gift to your wife on Mother's Day. Bargaining with God is wrong because it is saying to God, I must have this thing, whatever it is. I must have this thing, and I want it more than anything else. I want it even more than I want you, God. So, God, I'm asking you, I'm going to try to make a deal with you to get what I really want, which is not you, but it's this thing. Hannah was not doing that. In her love for God, her prayer was saying, not my will, but yours be done, O my beloved God.
I'm going to close with a story about another one of my sons, my son Dan. And his wife Danielle now have two small children, a two-year-old and a six-month-old, both girls. And Dan is observing his children's second reality sufferings already in their lives. The fears, the meltdowns, the jealousies. He has been surprised at the depth of compassion that he experiences for them. He wrote this, I would wrestle a wolf to keep these two children from harm. I would tackle a grizzly bear with my bare hands to save their lives. But he is finding that he cannot save them from the self-inflicted wounds of their own sinful nature. So he wrote, we need to live in relationship with God as our gift-giving parent rather than a vendor. My love for my child, he wrote, my love for my child is not a deal, but a gift. And if I could do one thing for my child, I would take her agony onto myself. But I can't, for I am a finite being. But God did. He took our agony, all of our second reality agonies, on himself when he died on the cross. And that's how we know that God is our highest good, who gives good gifts to us. And we can love him. He becomes our beloved when we see him on the cross. He did that for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. How wonderful you are, how good you are, that you would do that for us. We thank you. We bow before you and thank you for your good gifts. And, and oh God, we love you for it. And we want to live in your presence, enjoying your goodness, trusting you for goodness, trusting you for your good gifts. We want to live in your first reality giving to us. And so we entrust to you, release to you, all of our second reality sufferings. Thank you, O oh, our beloved God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, George.